Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let's pray. Most gracious God, may the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hear these words from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossia, chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. May you be strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He is himself before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Many years ago, I received this geode as a gift from a geologist, or rather from his widow. I wasn't special. She had many of these geodes to give away, and the most impressive ones went to other geologists and family and close friends. And she had so many to give away because because her husband had an eye for spotting rocks that he knew had hidden within them, or probably or possibly had hidden within them, an array of crystals. Now, most would see just a rock, but he could see past the hard crust to what lay within, something hidden, something beautiful. Sometimes hard life experiences are like that, aren't they? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and And even many times, if one is gifted with the right kind of perspective, there's something beautiful in the center of what is hard. A River Runs Through It is one of my favorite books, short book, a novella, really, but beautifully written by Norman MacLean. And because the story involves a Presbyterian minister's son, I found my place within the family of the novel. The story is fictionalized autobiography. It is told with Norman's voice as he looks back on when he and his brother Paul were in their 30s. And Norman 
has some hard memories, like when he worked in logging camps with a rough crowd to pay his way through school. Hard work and sometimes fighting was a diversion from the hard work, and Norman would find himself in the middle. And yet, with the perspective of time and distance, Norman can see something beautiful in how he grew up. And then there is the hardest experience of all. Paul, his fun, mischievous, and adventuresome brother, had a tendency to put himself in the wrong places with the wrong people, and a day came when he was a victim of a high-stakes poker game where he could not pay his debt. Paul's murder was devastating to his family, to Norman. But after many years, Paul's Death no longer defines how he remembers Paul. Paul's death no longer defined his life, and here is why, or at least how Norman explains why. Norman remembers a message that was painted on the wall of her Sunday school classroom. God is love. And he remembers as a kid that that message he felt was painted just for his family. He and his brothers were both high-spirited and feisty, And the boisterous behavior stressed their mother, and Paul's propensity to make poor choices vexed their father. But love and faith is what defined the family, even when they could not understand each other. And love and faith was for for them, or was for Norman anyway, like a saw that cut through even the hardest experience, revealing what was beautiful about having Paul in their lives even though Paul's life was cut short. What lingers for Norman as defining memories of his brother, what defines his brother is not the memory of his dying or why or what happened. It's other memories that now inspire gratitude for having known Paul, like the last time the father and sons went fishing before Paul's death. He remembers it as being perfect. Perfect, because they were each trying to take care of each other in their own way. And then it became more perfect. McLean was an English professor, and so he knew not to use the phrase more perfect. Yet he couldn't think of any other way of describing how best can become better than when he, when he proceeded to outfish his brother Paul, a rare event. And when Paul playfully threw stones around Norman to spoil his fishing, Norman knew that he would never feel better than he felt right then. It is something of a miracle that some can remember truly hard times like that. The Great Depression was crushing for many who lived in Appalachia. Some never got past the trauma of their childhood poverty and they cannot be blamed. And yet somehow others can remember that hard childhood and speak genuinely of gratitude for the people that they, that they live through it with them and for the hard lessons learned. Veterans Day was last weekend. Some who fought in the Vietnam War still haven't recovered. Some victims of assault still can't get over feeling victimized. And sometimes when that happens, the hard edge of life feels like it's become the center, defining life and robbing joy. And I will not criticize or judge anyone for not seeing past the hard crust because sometimes only a miracle of God can cut through. But Paul experienced that miracle. Paul sees the center and and he tries anyway. He tries to provide a sharp saw in what he writes in our passage. 
Now, in saying what I just said, I'm joining with those scholars who believe that Paul wrote Colossians and that Paul wrote Colossians at the end of his ministry. If that's the case, it may not be, but because it suits my purposes, I'm going with it today. If that's the case, it would be understandable if Paul dwelled on the hard times of his life, if he did so with some bitterness, if he dwelled on how his focused and purposeful life was upended on the road to Damascus and how hard and difficult a process it was for him to see that in the name of God, he had been persecuting others and been an enemy of God and that he needed to actually join in the cause of those that he had been persecuting. It's hard to have that kind of self-awareness. How he had to survive a shipwreck that never would have happened if he hadn't have been on a missionary journey in that cause. How he had to endure jailings and beatings because of that cause. Paul's life of faith, you see, had its own hard crust. But Paul has this vision to see the beauty in the center, the beauty beneath the crust. And it's a vision that he shares in the passage that I read. At the climax of the passage, Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is, God is not so turned off by the crusty, pitted edges of our lives, not so traumatized by our sin that God has decided that it would be best to have nothing to do with us. No, Paul says, God is actually pleased, pleased to dwell among us, flawed, foolish people who often make decisions that vex him. Just as Norman and his parents were pleased to call Paul a beloved brother and son, so is God pleased to call us heirs. Call us children. And then Paul tries to do what is absolutely impossible to do, and that is to explain the mystery of God dwelling among us in Christ. He uses phrases like the firstborn of all creation. He says that in Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He says that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. He says that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn, that Christ is preeminent, and that in him all things hold together. Did you get all that? <laughs> Those are beautiful, wonderful phrases. But in the time span of a sermon, and I have to say in the time span of my life, I cannot begin to understand, much less explain what all of that means. But I'm going to try a little bit. I'm going to turn some crystals into crust by trying to say something. I think that Paul is talking about that cosmic Christ of whom Peter N. spoke this past weekend. Paul sees Christ as the center of everything and that all our lives might be about living until we die. Christ is about how we live even though we die. Our lives might be a striving to prove that we are enough in somebody's eyes, or at least in our own, but Christ lets us know that we are enough already in God's eyes, and thus we can simply live as God's children. Christ is the center that holds the universe together. <laughs> That's almost too big a thing to say to even repeat. It's kind of embarrassing, but maybe what it means is that no matter how we live or die, no matter if sometimes what is hard becomes too heavy to bear, there ultimately is nothing that is difficult or worse harmful 
or worse still, evil, that's going to have the last word. There will ultimately be this thanksgiving celebration for all the universe, for all creation. There will be a thanksgiving celebration for all creation because while what is hard may sometimes seem to define the edge of life, the grace, mercy, and peace of God in Christ will never surrender the center. I recognize that some have had to live at the edges more than others, that life has been unfair in its distribution of burdens. I realize that sometimes the words, you should be thankful, are said too early to those who have suffered greatly. But I cling to Paul's hope. Even when I find it hard to believe it, I cling to Paul's hope that someday, maybe beyond the limits of one's days on earth, all of creation will be thankful. I dare to hope even the most victimized will know thanksgiving. For if Paul is right, God in Christ will make every life, no matter how tragic or short or hard or regret-filled, every life reach its completion through the healing of reconciliation because Christ is the center of all things. I also know that there are others of you in a season where the beautiful center of life is wonderfully for now in view for you. You have this knowing, not intellectual knowing, but this knowing that comes of being loved and knowing that you are loved, that God sees you and remembers you with all of your flaws as someone God loves. If that's the case, I don't need to stand here and tell you to give thanks. That'd be like telling someone hungry to eat. Some things don't need to be commanded. But I do hope that come Thursday, we remember that ultimately there is a day of thanksgiving for us all. So I hope you all remember to say a prayer for those who are in war zones or other places of oppression who cannot know anything right now but the hard edge. Say a prayer for them. Say a prayer that they may one day see a day soon when they can freely give thanks. And then notice who you're with and those who you are not with. Notice everyone who is at your table this Thanksgiving. And I'm talking about a metaphorical table. That is the table around which everyone who is significant in your life is there, even those who are not physically present, living somewhere else, or even who have died, but who are lovingly remembered. And remembering that Christ also is at that table. Give thanks, if you can. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.